I feel like one of the most empowering and motivating things that ever happened to me was to be a lesbian at this time in history where so much could happen. Where when I came out, I was worried about losing custody of a child, where I was worried about would I have a career, where I was worried about um, what my life would be like in every possible way because I was a lesbian. And um, it has been an infusion of strength and hopefulness and agency. I would never have done half the things I've done if I had been one of my straight sisters. <laughs> it's, it's powerful to be in a group that bands together, never perfectly, certainly, but bands together and says, we will make change, and then to do it. We ain't throwing starfish here, now we're having a good party. Talking about structural change. We believe the land is sacred, even beneath that vacant parking lot. But the weeds are doing their best to express the need for something different. Gonna make some space for you and me to live here all together. Gonna make it safe and fun for kids to get around the town. Gonna find me a residential pedestrian district where I can gracefully grow older. Gonna spend my remaining years sharing Boulder. Hello, Boulder and the wider world. This is the Sharing Boulder podcast. My name is Philip Bogren, and for episode 50, I spoke with Glenda Russell, who is a historian of the LGBTQ movement as it has unfolded here in Boulder and Colorado and beyond. Glenda has had a long career as a clinical psychologist, educator, and writer, and has a PhD in psychology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. We talked about the struggle to get sexual orientation included in Boulder's Human Rights Ordinance, which was added in 1987 by means of a ballot measure that won by a very small margin after a similar ballot measure was crushed 13 years earlier. This story includes many interesting characters, including Penfield Tate, who was a tireless human rights activist and for whom our municipal building is now named, Tim Fuller, who was considered a more radical liberal who ran on a tenants' rights platform, and Glenda herself, who showed up at many contentious city council meetings during this time and started taking notes about what she witnessed. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Glenda Russell. Glenda Russell, uh, welcome to Sharing Boulder. Thank you so much for uh, being here and spending time with me on a Saturday morning. Uh, it's delightful to have you. Thank you for inviting me. It's really, I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Well, please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do. I am... By training, I'm actually a psychologist. I'm a licensed psychologist in the state of Colorado. and um, But somewhere along the way, and maybe I'll tell that story today, in 1974, I started, I was in a, in a situation watching, a, watching city council meet and talk about queer issues, and I started taking notes, and I've been taking notes ever since, and that's a long time. So if you take notes that long, apparently you graduate into being a community historian. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And and so I and that's an important thing. I'm not trained as a historian. I'm I but I but I have been tracking queer history in Boulder since the early seventies and um I'm fascinated by it and it's I'm in the process of writing a book about it. Um 
And it's a fascinating history. And most of the history written about the queer movement is history of things that happen on either coast. And mm -hmm. the flyover states have been largely, not entirely, but largely missing from that history. And it turns out that Boulder in particular and Colorado in gender, in ge <laughs> that's <laughs> in a gender. great slip of the tongue, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Uh, and Colorado uh, in general have been notable in their contributions to queer history in this country. Wonderful. Well, uh, just before we got rolling, I was telling you that uh, Ren and I sat here two weeks ago and um, and I, I, we kind of cut off the conversation because we're like, oh, we should we should include this as part of the recording. So, yeah, we went to the the queer comedy, Colorado Queer Comedy Festival That's what uh, it was last called. month in uh, in November. And uh, I went Friday night and you went Saturday night. I had such a wonderful time. It was uh, just an electric, uh, energized crowd. And um, I don't know, you, you uh, tell me about your reaction to it. I, I also had a wonderful time. Um, the snowstorm notwithstanding. Yeah. Um, and part of why I had a wonderful time is it's really good to go laugh. I don't yeah. care what's going on. And so, you know, I, that was an opportunity to laugh a lot. I think beyond that, um, Ren put together some great folks, many of whom were from Colorado, many of whom were from, some of whom were from elsewhere. And it is such a wonderful thing when members of a community come together in for anything, practically speaking, and yeah. particularly when there are limited opportunities for those members of communities to come together. And then when they come together to make fun, there's something magical that happens because they're speaking in something of a different language. Um, you know, the, the, what's in the room is the usual kind of humor. And then there's this substrate of cultural humor that is like, you might say inside jokes, you know, like, yeah. and, and that's just so welcoming and so, um, validating and, you know, and it's an opportunity for those of us who are in part of the queer and trans community to learn about others who are in other parts of the queer and trans community. Sure. So that's also like, you can be an insider and an outsider depending on the nature of the jokes being told. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I assume you and Ren have very different experiences moving through life and, and the, the lives that you've had that, you know, you're born different years and you have different yes. letters from the, the, the alphabet, you know? Yeah. And, right. Um, <laughs> yes, we do. And so, and that is one of the great things. I mean, I'm, I am cisgender. It was really, there were a lot of trans there was a lot of trans humor there, mm -hmm. and that was that's a great way to learn about other people. We know that learning in a safe environment is the best way to learn. It's probably the only way to learn, really. Yeah. And what better way to create safety than somebody telling jokes and inviting you to participate in the life? Well, I'm, it makes me wonder if you've, have have you been to a, a comedy event like that before? I've not that big because yeah. there uh, were what sixteen or seventeen comedians. Yeah, and and over a hundred people. It's, yeah. it's kind of a small venue, but it was packed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was on on the next night as well. So I've been to smaller events of that sort of. Haven't been mm -hmm. to anything that had that many comedians and that many people in the audience. At some conferences that I've been to, some activist conferences have 
have comedians. And the, yeah. the women's community in particular, the lesbian community in particular, has a really strong cultural history of women comics yeah. who are wonderful and, you know, fill cruise ships, yeah. literally, yeah, <laughs> with lesbians. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Yeah, so, well, why don't we talk about Boulder's history of LGBTQ or queer queer community? Um, you were telling me about on the way here, you had a, a, a tripod <laughs> of things to, to, to consider as, as you're kind of like thinking thinking about and maybe and maybe we'll talk about that but i'm okay. i'm also thinking um of going back to that moment when i started taking notes oh please on what was on what, yeah. what was happening because it's, it's a fascinating story and a lot of people don't know that history a lot of queer people don't know that history it happened in in 1973 is when it began um the city of boulder had passed a human rights ordinance and it was fairly early in the in the in the annals of such municipal ordinances that prohibited discrimination and there was talk because of a group on that was that was a student group but it had lots of community folks as well uh called Boulder Gay Liberation Front and Boulder Gay Liberation Front asked the two sponsors of that ordinance if they would include sexual preference. Now, notice it was called sexual preference uh -huh. then. That changed in the middle of of this story. They, Those conversations. It became sexual orientation for strategic reasons um, yeah. or in reaction to the pushback. It was a strategic reason to change that. Stop having that preference. Yes. Can't you, could you prefer right. something else, please? No. And that's where <laughs> yeah. we started picking up the I'm born that way. I can't yeah. help it. Now, if you think about it, I'm born that way is really just a sidestep from I can't help it, which sort of buys into the notion or at least implies the notion that it's a bad thing and you could if you would. Yeah. And right. that's a problematic kind of construction. It made sense in the political environment that we were in. We're talking the early 70s. Right. You know, this is a few years after Stonewall, the rebellion in New York that happened mm -hmm. in June of 1969. We, are, we have just been, in two years earlier, released from the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual saying we were crazy. Um, we are still illegal, same-sex Sex is still illegal in lots of states, most states. Like on the books, like you're not allowed to have this kind of sex That's with right. these kinds of people. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> that didn't change for a long time. Um, and so you have, you know, so, so you're asking for rights and, you know, we still don't trust you in terms of mental health. We, the law doesn't like you and religion sure as heck doesn't like you. And those are those three structural yeah. um, legs of the tripod, by the way, the, the law mental health and religion and um and we had we were barely out of the woods with any of those and so when people pushed back we, it makes sense that we would say okay it's not really a preference that we choose we really we we were born this way you know and that's that's still a that that the language of that is still very prominent in the queer rights movement um and still begs for critique i think um given what it implies about about us because there's there's a is that is it because there's a rigidity baked into being born a certain way uh, and when when really like humans are fluid and, yeah. and we change through our lives it turns out that we have a lot of data that suggests people are much more fluid than we give them credit for being 
one of the things Kinsey had been an early Kinsey had had shown us this earlier, uh, even earlier than this 1974, 70, 1973, and seventy four time. I mean, one of the things that Kinsey found out from his work that shocked the heck out of people was that there was a lot more homosexuality going uh, going on than anybody knew. That was true in his first study with men. It was true in his second study of women. And uh, as a therapist for. 35 years I was a practicing therapist and I learned people's sig- secrets, you know, yeah. and I saw, I had a very diverse practice, always did and always wanted to. And, um, I thought just people are not in the categories that they're supposed to be or that yeah. they, even their language would suggest they, they are. And that's because we are much more fluid than, than we give ourselves credit for being. And that's too bad because it constrains us in all kinds of ways. It makes life much more, well, I would say at the very least, much less interesting <laughs> than it would otherwise be. So, so a, and a part of it was the, the, the pushback against including sexual, sexual preference in the human rights ordinance was very specific. Well, these other things we include, people are born that way. People are born male or female. That's, that's up for grabs actually right now, mm-hmm. um, people are born into a different race, never mind that those races are constructed, and change in how we think about them from one era to another and from yeah. one place to another. But but at the time, we were believing people were born in those ways, so it was an easy thing to say, This is this my sexual orientation is so much a part of who I am that it feels like I was born that way too. Um, n- never mind that religion was also covered in this ordinance, and religion is definitely not something that people are born with. You know, you don't spring into the world with a particular religion. Um, yeah. Somebody yeah. may, you know, pull you into that religion through baptism or some other, some other mechanism. But you, you know, nobody so, says, so "Oh, back, this has got to be a Catholic kid." Back up for me for a second. Um, the the setting is city council, right? Circa nineteen seventy three. Actually, in, seventy four now because seventy four the fight started in seventy three, but and, this is and the 74. proposal on the table is to pass a human rights statement. It's it, or is is it a legal? Is it legal? Does it yes. have legal teeth to it? Yeah, yes, it, it's, it's about a, distri- discrimination and jobs. That's and right. Benefits and that right. kind of stuff. Right, and it already, in fact, had been passed just very recently. But the question on the table was: Are we going to include sexual preference in yeah. in this thing? And Council had looked at that issue in December of 73 and said yes. And then there was a backlash. Backlash. And various people in the community said that was a, if you'll excuse the language, a lame duck council. So instead, we want to, we want the new council to do it. Well, the new council did the exact same thing in early 74. And then there was a really big backlash. And so there was a, public hearing on the issue. There were 400 people at the council meeting. 400 people cannot fit into council chambers. There were 200 in chambers. 200 were watching on closed circuit TV. Same, same building that we have now same in building. Canyon. Okay. Yes, same yeah. building. <laughs> I think and it seats 200 maybe at yeah, the most yeah, if you're yeah, standing remotely. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, there were 200 people downstairs in the, yeah. I don't know, which, you know, in the, on the first floor, yeah, basically right. not very comfortable. But they had put chairs out. A little context, the mayor at the time was a man named Penfield Tate. Yes. The second, for whom that building is now named, long overdue, mm-hmm. I would say. Penfield Tate, Tate is the person who, 
at the request of the Boulder Gay Liberation Front folks, decided to um, propose including sexual preference in the human rights ordinance. It were the that proposal was co-sponsored by a man named Tim Fuller, who was a new council member. People at the time would have described him as a hippie. He had long hair. He had a mustache. He um, worked in a bookstore collective on the hill, and he ran on a tenants' rights uh, platform to 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 get on council. And he actually was far more if you will, liberal than Penn was. Penn was a political moderate in many ways, but Penn Tate, who was Boulder's first and so far only black mayor, was a man who had an absolutely deep and abiding belief in human rights and civil rights. And anything in that domain, he was going to he was all, going to he, be on. Yeah. And he had sponsored it. Tim had co-sponsored it. And all of these people are now coming together, 400 in the building, probably a pretty evenly divided between pro and con, I'm guessing. They were in that in the in the council chambers. I, that's where I was. So you could sort of see the energy. In fact, people kind of segregated themselves for as long as they could as we were moving into the room. Um, and and those of us who were for the, the um, for including sexual preference in that amendment actually had lavender armbands on. So it was was kind of visible. Um, So the hearing went on and on. It it was, there was true vitriol. I mean, you know, are we going to have a lesbian homo bill here? There was a lot of false talk about the absolutely unfounded idea that gay people recruited people, gay people recruited kids in particular. We see that that chestnut follows every major fight about gay rights it has for decades and it continues to this day it's it's a big theme with uh uh resistance against the trans community absolutely right now. yeah and it's it's a total lie and and as a psychologist who has worked with a lot of folks who who have trauma experiences it really is such an offensive lie because in addition to being a lie about a whole community it also makes it far less likely that we will be able to protect children because we're looking at the wrong places for where the danger is coming for children. And that is a true disservice to every child. Because if you're saying the gays are doing it or somebody else is doing it, where kids are more likely to be traumatized by inappropriate sexual advances is in their families and in their close communities. It's not on the street. Now, it's, some of that does happen on the street, well, but mostly I, I mean, it's not. That, the heartbreaking thing about that is to think about all the abuse that's happened, neglected and unaccounted for over decades. Yes. When people are like, oh, gays are like ruining our children. It's like, no, it's the, these priests are, yeah. are It's why it's so them. dangerous. Yeah. It's why it's so, I mean, we do it. Our, our children are pawns in that. I mean, they, they are really misused in that argument because it, it, it has us looking at the wrong, at the yeah. wrong perpetrators. That word homoville, it, it's like, oh, <laughs> it's kind of, I, I don't, I mean, you laugh. I'm, thank you for laughing because it, 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 it generates a kind of a weird response for me because like the notion that, and I, I kind of, I mean, I don't mean to um, 
I wasn't there in the 70s, but I, I can I can kind of picture the kind of person who might come up to the microphone <laughs> and start wagging their finger and, and shout out, you know, Homoville. You know, she was like. actually a person who um, every speaker had two minutes and unless they collected other people's minutes and she collected a bunch of other people's minutes. So she had a and she oh. she was she her name was Helmer Skinner. She was Hilmer. Hilma. Hilma. Sorry, Hilma yeah. Skinner. She was a Christian, and she really was offended because she really believed that these people were sinful, and she yeah. said that. And that was not that was not implicit. That was explicit, but not just from Hilma. I mean, it was from a lot of people yeah. in that room. Um, and I understand they were taught that they they were not, you know. It's really easy to assume that people are evil or something, and I, I think you know we don't choose what we what we are taught. We can choose to be critical and look at it and understand it and change it if if facts call for that. We all come out of a cultural setting yep, that shapes us, and we can't. It's it's difficult to like be objective about all of yeah, that. You yeah, know. none of us is, and I really believe that. And and the and we know now as in as a psychologist, we know more now about how difficult it is to change that than we even knew in the seventies. I think in the seventies we were coming into this period of huge social and cultural change, and we were much more optimistic. But the data don't really support too much optimism, although the data do say we can change. But as as the old joke goes, we have to want to change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. Who who wants to change? <laughs> I mean, like we all. Well, I'm, I mean, do you want to? I mean, smaller... I mean, it's personal no, work, right? Yeah, yeah, it is personal work, and it's also social work. Yeah. I mean, because one of the reasons people change, and one of the ways communities change, is because we see change around us, and we start talking with other people, and we go, "You think that way? Tell me why." How do you, oh, you are one of them. Tell me about that. And, you know, yeah. our worlds get bigger instead of smaller. And it's kind of nice to have a bigger world rather than a smaller world. And Absolutely. So that's a piece of it. So we're in this room. We're having this conversation. And the council is going, oh, we are in a mess here. And the council did something that politicians sometimes do. They went, Let's punt. <laughs> yeah. And they made a re they they called the question into a referendum. And so in oh, 19 voted on by the yes, by the that's uh, right. ballot. So in 1974 the city of Boulder those who were registered got to vote and they um voted overwhelmingly to not include sexual preference. By now it's sexual orientation because it had changed okay. midstream as I yeah. said. They voted not to include sexual orientation in the human rights ordinance. It was kind of narrowly about that whether that was going to get included in an existing very narrow. ordinance. And at that point, one of the things that happened, I've talked to some people who were kids here at the high schoolers, say, mm -hmm. and people just went, oh, my goodness. Well, we were trying to come out of the closet, but I don't think it's working very well. And, Never and mind. <laughs> people shut down. Yeah. And I have a, a friend who said she just stopped even knowing that she was a lesbian at that point and it took her years to get back to that because she saw this incredible you know this this incredible bank of people saying you don't belong here and we don't want to talk about this and it went away it was like silent after that except some people decided they wanted to recall Penfield Tate and Tim Fuller 
and each of them was, in fact, subjected to a recall. Tim Fuller was recalled, left town shortly after that, and did various really wonderful a things. Recall is, is another election where it, you, you say we want this person out. Yeah, we want him off. We want him. So Tim Tim was recalled. He left. Um, and Penn narrowly survived the recall, but when he ran for re-election, he who had gotten the most votes in the prior election lost in the re-election. He tried after that to do various, well, he tried in particular to get on the legislature and he couldn't get the, Dem the Dems to give him the time of day. I mean, they, he was persona non grata. I don't think anybody would object to the observation that Penn Tate gave up a political career, a very promising political career. On that issue. On that issue. Wow. And, I've and I, I became friends with him later. I don't think he ever regretted it because that was so much where his heart was. I don't think he was pleased about having to do it, yeah. but I think, yeah. but I think, you know, he kept his conscience and he and he and he kept his sense of himself. So you're at this at this city council meeting, and you're like, I should pull out my notebook and start writing down. What did you write down? Were you trying to like shorthand the quotes that people were saying? Or interestingly enough, I didn't even have a notebook or a pen. Okay, <laughs> and I think he, the psychologist in me says. I started listening to what was going on, and I, I recognized the energy before I even got there. I mean, yeah. before be, before it even started. They had given us an agenda when we walked in. I had a piece of paper. I borrowed a pen from somebody. And what I started writing was I wrote the name of each speaker, which side they were on, what their main arguments were, and any sort of color commentary I had about them. Mm -hmm. And I was like writing little tiny. Um, and, and part of it was, I think I knew I am in the middle of a movement. And we, I hadn't known I was in the middle of a movement before that day. Mm -hmm. I mean, oh, and, wow. I, and I just went, this is history being made. I don't know if I'm going to like it or what's, what's happening yeah. here or not. <laughs> yeah. But this is history being made. In retrospect, and, and from my self-awareness, as a psychologist, I think I was also going, you need to intellectualize this a bit because it's going to be really painful when you start hearing some of the stuff that people are going to be saying. Yeah, and yeah. so it was a way to kind of get a little bit above it and to think about it a little more rationally rather than to take in some of the really overtly homophobic. This was old-fashioned homophobia where people were not polite about it. It was not politically correct homophobia. It was in-your-face homophobia. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was not the good kind of homophobic, like the politically correct kind. Well, you run into no, that. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I run no, into that I, sometimes I, course, still. Uh, I've written about that, actually. I'm really interested in that as a psychologist. Well, maybe give us the landscape of, of what that means. Of, of what, uh... it, comes in, it comes in various forms, Philip. It comes in forms like, I think it's fine you want to do this, but you don't. But you, I think it's fine what you and your girlfriend do, but we don't, you know, marriage is for heterosexual people. Yeah. I mean, it's not mean-spirited. It's not meant to be mean, but it's, you're not quite included. These or, are institutions that are in place that have right. been going on for a long time. That literally you, gets you want, said. You want to just walk in and pretend like it's something else. Right, exactly. One of my favorite versions, and this is a version that you get in a place like Boulder. Well, I love Boulder, actually. Yeah. Here's a version you get in Boulder. I know you LGBTQ people 
suffer a lot of things. I'm going to come and help you. (laughs) It's like, I know you people. (laughs) And I'm going to help you. Yeah. Because you need my help. Um, Because, you know, y'all have a lot of suicide. And, you know, so there's a, there's a even helpful kinds of stances can reinforce the power difference Mm -hmm. between groups of people in a way that's very insidious and very hard for when we do it to another group, it's kind of, you know, we think we're being nice um, and we're trying to be nice. And that's where an important distinction is between the intent and the impact, of course, because the impact is like, do I need your help or am I that bad off? Or do you only care about me if you can rescue me? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's an interesting dynamic. That's the good homophobia. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Now, right. This is be clear for anyone listening audio only. She's double. She's uh, air quoting here. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, okay. Interesting. Um, Shall I talk about the next big issue that happened in Boulder? Yes, please. After that, I mean, with um, the following year. Okay, so Penn's still serving on council. Tim's gone. Everybody has sort of the whole issue has dried up. We're not talking about it. But then we had to talk about it again because two young men in El Paso County went into the clerk's office and asked for a marriage license. And the clerk said, we don't do that here. But the clerk also said, you might try Boulder. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, you might try Boulder because, you know, everybody had read you know, look what happened in Boulder. In fact, queer stuff was really invisible in 1973 and 74. So when this when this kind of thing happened with the human rights ordinance, it was huge. It was very visible statewide. Yes, absolutely. Um, did it get national attention? It got some national yeah. attention, yes. It would have gotten more national attention if it had been by a, by a major media market. <laughs> yeah, but, but, a, but a county clerk in El Paso knew about it. Absolutely. And, and so did everyone else absolutely. around them. Yeah. Now, so they sent... You know, they sent these two guys up here. And in truth, Penn Tate had been approached in the meantime by a couple of uh, same-sex couples who wanted to apply for marriage licenses. And he had looked at it legally. He was a lawyer. And he said, you know, there's nothing in the statute that that genders this thing. And he had warned the people in the clerk's office that somebody might, this might happen. He was not talking about the two guys from El Paso, El Paso County, but they got here first. And so they came up, but, but in the meantime, the County clerk, a woman named Cleela Rorex, who was a young uh, feminist had, and had only recently been elected to the County clerk's office. Um, She had been forewarned a bit that this might be coming and had, gotten a little advice on it and she was told that in fact the statute was silent on the issue of the sex of the people who applied for licenses it was they were silent because nobody ever imagined that they had to write down one man and one woman (laughs) that's why it was silent it wasn't you know i mean it was it was one of those things where we take it so much for granted that marriage only applies to one man and one woman that we can't even we we don't we even bother even, putting yeah, it down. It's not even in the law, right? Interesting. Exactly. So Clela, over the course of a couple of weeks, handed out what was her name again? Clela. Clela. C L E C L E L A. 
Clela handed out six licenses to same-sex couples. And then you would have thought, then that did make national news. <laughs> In yeah. fact, Johnny Carson told a joke about it on okay. The Tonight Show. Was it friendly? No. No. Okay. <laughs> there were not many no. friendly jokes about this. In fact, Clela got quite a few letters that were um, condemning her, damning her in some cases. Yeah. Um, damning to hell. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And Cleela uh, had very little, by her own admission, Cleela had very little awareness of the community. There was one guy in the clerk's office who was gay, whom she knew. But basically, she didn't know gay people to speak of. And she was taking the advice of the county attorney, or the assistant county attorney, actually. And she was shocked by the by the... She wasn't like a human rights no, she insider. Wasn't. She was. Activist. She was not an insider. Yeah. She was. She was pretty young. She had been in now the National Organization for Women, and in fact, that was the thing that she drew on explicitly was, "I don't want people to discriminate against me. I don't want to discriminate against anybody else." Yeah. And and as she says, as she has said it, she passed a f- couple of years ago now, but as she as she said it before she died in multiple venues um she didn't know much about the issue it wasn't she's learned a lot about it and over time she became an ally then she was kind of an accidental ally i mean and and she and the queer community really never got together on it because the queer community are going oh my god do you know what happened to us last year we do not want this i mean yeah i mean mean, you know it might not be perfectly welcome what she did kind of uh yeah. Sudden, it, suddenly, you know, yeah. right. She did it, I think, with good motives. Yeah. Um, and she did it with the permission of of the people who tended to the law in yeah. for the county. The attorney general of the state, a guy, a guy named McFarlane, also tended to the law, and he told her to stop, which she did. So yeah. after six licenses were passed out, um, there were no more licenses. And then were those six revoked? Interestingly enough, McFarland says they are not valid. That's what he said in his statement. There is, it never was tested in any court. It never went through any court process. Well, it did actually later through, it went through immigration court because two of the guys who got licenses, there's actually a movie about these two guys, two of the guys who got licenses uh, represented an international couple. One was from here, one was from Australia. And they wanted to stay here. They'd already been kicked out of the country once because the the Australian man's visa was had expired. Uh, they had sneaked back into the country, as a matter of fact. And they came from California. They heard about it on the Johnny Carson show, <laughs> where I get my news. <laughs> they, yeah. they heard about it on the Tonight Show. They came here and got the license. And then they actually petitioned to Immigration and Naturalization, I think it was called at the time, and asked and said that you know they should be allowed to stay in this country because they were now married. One of them was a U.S. citizen. Yeah. Um, and they actually got a letter they actually received a letter from Immigration and Naturalization that said, you have not established that a marital relationship, this is not a direct quote, it's very close, and the last part will be a quote. Can, you have not established that a marital relationship can exist between two faggots. That's oh. what the letter from the government said. The government 
has since apologized for that, by the way, but only just a couple of years ago. Um, but and this, that, is, this is coming down from that wording would have been approved from someone in INS uh, that oversaw that that case. Presumably. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, so at least somebody didn't stand in its way or go ask or something, but that was what yeah. the letter said. So there's so that's the only time it was adjudicated, and it but that was not but that was an immigration. I think we case. need air quotes again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Thank you. Yes, you're good with the air quotes. Um, anyway, so and then that went away again, and that kind of, you know, the, although here's a here's a way that the homophobia comes back in. A guy named something Howard came to the courthouse. Not some within a matter of weeks or months, it's not a long time at all, after that, and he had his horse named Dolly, and he he had actually warned Cleo that he was coming, and he said he wanted he wanted to marry his horse. And and the implicit thing, of course, in this is that if a man can marry a man, then I should be able to marry my horse. Now, look at all the homophobia in that. Yeah, yeah. Cleo went through her check boxes and when she asked the age of the bride uh he gave her the age i think it was eight or something and she said sorry she dolly is not old enough and and then they actually kind of became sort of friendly there was a photo a little later in the daily camera of clearly riding dolly <laughs> that's so weird <laughs> oh my god <laughs> tell me about it and you and think about you know for people who are listening in particular I, you get it clearly philip but people who are listening just think about you are a young person in boulder and this is how people are talking about you and your love yeah um that's Devastating. not useful uh, no and that's an understatement the next hit in boulder's history on this Things went quiet again. People are going, oh my God, let's just not never talk about this. Meanwhile, gay rights are sort of moving on around the country a bit. And in 1987, so this is a jump of 14 years, uh, 15, uh, 13 years, because this, cause the marriages in, were in 75. Um, in 1987, there were some young women, one of whom had just graduated from CU, and she came from a from New Jersey and a nice liberal family, and she found out somehow that Boulder's human rights ordinance didn't cover sexual orientation, and she went, "That's so bizarre. We need to change that." And so, and so she went and her name was Cat Morgan, and she went and she talked to some of the more likely people on council who might be interested in changing this, and they said to her, "Do you know what happened in 1974 here?" And she went, "No." And Kat describes it as she and her friends were off reading the microfiche in the library, mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to find out, well, what the heck happened here? And they found out and they realized that none of the council members were, was willing to put it on the bat, uh, was willing to bring it up for a council vote. Uh, yeah. vote. They were not. And it was, I mean, it was political suicide. Just ask Penn Tate, just yeah. ask Tim Fuller. And so... Um, they decided they were going to have to get a petition out and get enough people to enough citizens to sign and say that they wanted to have this thing come up for guess what a vote of the people and so there was a referendum in 87 some of us who were now older 
So a group, I was working with a group of people, a group of women, some straight, some lesbian. We called Penn Tate. We said, Penn, would you come over and talk with us? And he said, yeah. And <laughs> we said, Penn, here's this coming again. We're not sure it can pass again. We know what happened last time. It was really destructive. What the heck do you what, recommend? Yeah, what can we do different? Pentate said, well, I don't know if it'll pass this time. But what I do know is sometimes you have to do something because it's the right thing to do. And we're all sitting there sort of hanging our heads going, thank you for giving us the obvious advice. <laughs> <laughs> this was a man who believed that so deeply in his soul. He didn't have to think twice. He just didn't have to think twice. He's really, he really was a heroic human being in a lot of ways, not just around this issue. Um, so there were the, these, these folks collected enough signatures to get it on the ballot. And there was, it, there was a referendum in 87. They had a great button that said, isn't it queer, in big words on the button, isn't it queer? that Boulder's Human Rights Ordinance doesn't cover sexual orientation. That was a great button because people weren't using queer normally in right. 87. It was, right. a, it was, it was a, I liked it. I still have that button. So the vote came down to the last precinct. I mean, it, it won by under 300 votes. Oh, wow. But we did not know, because it was that close, we did not yeah. know until the last precinct if it was going to carry or not. And I think it was surprising to a lot of people that it did. And then there are people who, I mean, another way to be homophobic is to deny that homophobia exists. It's not a problem, see? Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you got it. Um, I called Penn the next morning as soon as I got to my office. I was a little worried I would wake him up because I saw I started my day early. <laughs> and I, I mean, he had this great laugh. And he just laughed his way through the conversation. And he was in such a good mood. And he said, I feel vindicated. And I said, you are vindicated. Well, what, ha what, what changed between 74 and 87 that allowed that vote to flip? I think a couple of things. We were no longer the first. We weren't, we weren't the first anyway. But, it, you know, when, when 74 happened, there were about already 50 municipalities around the country that already covered sexual orientation in whatever sort of non-discrimination ordinance it had. So it wasn't like we were the, you know, the, the earliest show around. There had not been referenda about it, however. Mm -hmm. And that's different to, to have a body like a city council or that sort of body make a decision like that versus having it become part of a campaign where the the campaign can stir up lots of homophobia and yeah. you know so so the other 50 were the, the councilors unseated yeah just passed an ordinance yes. like you normally yeah. would and, and you know Boulders was a first and they one. were in pretty liberal town Ann Arbor Michigan sure. you know they were in in towns where you would expect that sort of thing to happen um, and you had, you know, a, a, enough people on the council who were willing to take the risk and you didn't have a reaction from the population that, you know, because they're kind of liberal anyway. Yeah. And this was an interesting time for Boulder because this was the first council that we ever had that was not basically white, presumably heterosexual. I know one gay guy, but white heterosexual Businessmen, almost, almost yeah. 
exclusively. And and the reason why it was a different council now with people like Penn Tate and Tim Fuller, Karen Padgett, who was the youngest council member to that time, she was in her she was still in her twenties, um, was the 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 uh, amendment giving eighteen year olds the right to vote had come into play. There had been a really big push to make sure students were in were were registered to vote, and the complexion of council changed overnight. I mean, for one thing, they were women. Oh my God, <laughs> um, that was also in quotes. Um, so it, you know, so the, the oh my God, yeah, that's, <laughs> not, that's, not the women. They, they were right. actually women. On city <laughs> they council. were indeed. Yeah. Um, and so, so there were, it, we were at a cusp. Anyway, this town was at a cusp, partly due to a federal amendment, an amendment to the federal constitution, and. Um, but it wasn't enough. We weren't far enough into that to, you know, to to be able to. I'm sorry. What's the federal amendment to the Constitution that the the amendment to the Constitution that changed the 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 age of people who the, oh right the voting right. age yeah the voting age. So that's one of the changes. You know, we have now we're going for you know you asked, you asked a great question and I haven't answered it yet, but I've been going all around it. Yeah. Um, the I think. One of the things that happened is we were no longer looking like we were in some kind of vanguard, even though we weren't really in some kind of vanguard. Another thing that changed was that people had, during that period of time, their, the opportunity to meet gay and lesbian people who were open. There was a little bit more coverage in the media. Um, AIDS had happened. Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, AIDS in this country provided a people who wanted to be homophobic with a lot of grounding for their homophobia, but it also humanized the, the especially gay male community for people. And then it humanized the whole queer community for people because people, because non, non LGBT people saw the whole LGBTQ community taking care of sick people, often when their communities weren't, the broader communities weren't. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, you know, the, it was like, oh my God, these are people and they die. It's interesting that you say that because I've, I've always been kind of like amazed that um, queer rights seem to have improved through the AIDS pandemic, which to me seems like it made the uphill struggle much more difficult. But I guess in some ways it, it kind of cut the other direction that it increased the amount of conversation that was going on right. and people's awareness and well then you knew, you and you i mean i think it it really did give some people ammunition and they used it of course but it, it did that other thing. i mean you had people like rock hudson coming out and and dying very shortly after he came out and you had people you had these visible people in people's neighborhoods and these i mean they happened in boulder Guys are coming back here and, and their neighbors are going, oh, my God, this kid just came back and he's now in his 30s and he's dying. And I, you know, and I knew him when he was a kid. And, you know, so there's there's this humanizing that went on. And and again, part of it was also the humanizing of the community stepping up and saying, I know we're out because we're taking care of each other. That's just what's yeah. going to happen. And that happened here, too, with BCAP, which got started as a grassroots movement. B BCAP. BCAP, sorry, Boulder County AIDS Project. Okay. You know, and these were like people who didn't, they weren't doctors. They weren't, some of them actually were, and some of them were nurses, but most of them weren't. They were, what do we do? I don't know. Well, he needs food. Okay, we'll figure out how to get him food. Okay, we do. I mean, they, people just started 
working in the community to take care of folks who were sick. And other people saw that, often from a distance. And that, you know, and then there were allies nationally who had to, uh, who either had to voice more discrimination against people with AIDS or voice support. And there were enough who voiced support that there was a, a sense of an, an, another way of acting toward in specifically sick gay men, but more generally, I think, people in the queer community. So that's one of the things that, that, that happened. I think the other thing that happened Although is... Although that, I think of that, um, so was that going on prior to 1987, that this yes. community yeah. work that you're talking about? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. yeah. The, the AIDS was in Colorado in the early 80s. Okay. And, um, and it was certainly here in Boulder in the early 80s. I mean, it's probably here earlier than that, in fact, but people started getting sick then. So people did have a chance to see that before 87, absolutely. Okay. Okay. And they saw it locally, they saw it nationally. And and again, we didn't win that vote by a whole heck of a lot, yeah, you know, under 300 votes. votes. <laughs> wow. um, was not what you'd call a landslide. And I think I just want to give credit, if you will, to something else that, that I think is a part of the response to the question you asked, which is we were... We were using, the queer community benefited from the strategies and from the visibility <clears throat> and from the changes that were made on behalf of the black civil rights movement and the women's movement. Because people were seeing, you know, we were wrong about that and we were wrong about this. and Maybe we we're wrong about this other thing with gay people too. You know, so, I mean, there was, there was you know, this... The 70s, the 60s lasted a long time. The 60s lasted into the 70s. Um, I think the 60s yeah. lasted until Richard Nixon got elected in 72, actually. Mm -hmm. And but the but the results of the 60s and the early 70s were still sort of changing the landscape for people who had been in disapprobated groups. We're changing the landscape for people who had been marginalized. And um and I think that's another, you know, like it's easier to go later and because people are a little bit primed to think these are people. Yeah. One of our earliest uh, guests on this show was Dave Ensign, uh -huh. who uh, uh, served on planning board, but also served in the gay community, uh, helping with AIDS, um, kind of as you described. He, he told us a narrative about how he got involved in, um, and that gave him hope in terms of political change and his ability to affect change in, in Boulder as on planning board. Yes. And, um, and I, uh, I thought that was a really cool narrative that he shared. And I, I'm kind of curious if, if you feel hopeful, if like, if like, as you've seen history unfold from 73 and prior to you know it's 2023 it's 50 years um if if we're on the right trajectory and if 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 you feel hope and excitement from from what you've seen unfold or if you're you got a mix of dread in there with with uh what what you see going on i'm kind of just curious to hear you reflect on on that that's a great question philip if you asked me if you had asked me this three years ago four years ago i would have had a an unequivocal answer and now it's a little mixed, and then it's not going to surprise you that why it's mixed. But let me talk about that a bit. I feel 
like one of the most empowering and motivating things that ever happened to me was to be a lesbian at this time in history where so much could happen. Where when I came out, I was worried about losing custody of a child, where I was worried about would I have a career, where I was worried about um, what my life would be like in every possible way because I was a lesbian. And um, it has been an infusion of strength and hopefulness and agency. I would never have done half the things I've done if I had been one of my straight sisters. <laughs> totally. I, I had two, and as well as three brothers, all of whom were straight. It's, it's powerful to be in a group that bands together, never perfectly, certainly, but bands together and says, we will make change, and then to do it. And it's imperfect change, but it's change. And, you, and, and it's, it's hard to know change. There's some really interesting memory research about we don't know change when it's happening very well. Somebody, I, I went to a doctor the other day. This is really a true story. I was at the doctor. She said, does this still hurt, this thing? Yeah, I'm not going to talk about my medical thing. And I said, oh, that's right. It did hurt before. But when it gets better, you don't notice it hurts anymore. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's really nice because you don't have to live with that memory of that hurt. But it's also not nice because in the political realm, you forget how much change you have made. As a therapist, people used to say, is this working? I said, don't ask about, are you feeling better this week? Tell me how you were six months ago. Yeah. And then we can sort of think about, is change happening? And But you have to make yourself think about it because when it goes away, it goes away and you really don't think about it very much. And but I the 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 historian part of me has made me think about it and think about it all the time, and it's made me hopeful individually and it's made me hopeful socially, socially uh, you know socially and politically. Yeah. It also has taught me that change is not a straight line; it goes all over the place. Um, Positive change is not a given. No, it is not a given. And and if we walk into the sea and we you know we feel a wave come in and almost knock us off our feet, uh, we kind of gear up for that and we know, you know, like we could fall down and you know, I've which has happened to most of us who if you've ever been in the ocean very much. Mm -hmm. And um but we forget that when that same wave goes back out, we have to steady ourselves too, because if we don't that will also take us down. The backlash, if you will, will also take us under. And when we make progress, we're going to see backlash. It's natural. It is not even bad necessarily. I mean, it's not awful. I, I was once, a, this was years ago when I was a graduate student. I was at a conference by a guy who was a family therapist, and he was showing this video, and it was a bit, you know, they always show like their wonderful videos that are success. <laughs> and he shows us this video and he's talking with this family. It's a single parent family. And there's a kid who's a fire starter in it. Not a kid you want to have a house too much. And, and what he's trying to do in his model is to make it a family problem and not you're the bad kid who's an awful person. And that you could see they're making that progress. They're making that progress. And then the, 
the 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 mom says something that puts the kid back in the identified patient position, we would call it. You know, he's mm-hmm. like the bad kid. And the whole audience, this is a couple hundred therapists, they go, oh. And this therapist, I wish I could do an Argentinian accent because he was from Argentina, actually. This therapist turns off the video at that point. And he says, why do you say, oh? He says, if you have a family and you want to change them, you don't want them to suddenly fall over dead in the face of your interventions. You want them to have enough strength to push back because that means they can actually incorporate new things. If they can be pushed over by me, they can be pushed over by anything. Yeah. So don't go, oh, go, aha. Interesting. Which was one of the best lessons I've ever gotten. I don't remember a thing else out of that two days, but that was one of the most important lessons I ever got as a therapist because that, in fact, is what happens. But it's also politically an incredible lesson. We don't want to be able to say, let's change it, and everything changes, because we're in danger of that right now. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, yeah you, 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 there is a sense you want change to be slowish and in the right direction, uh, because you don't want quick change in the wrong direction. Yes. I guess is one, one way of thinking about it. Well, and, and if things get too, you don't want to destabilize the system too much because then you get a very high probability of going in the wrong direction. That's where we are right now in this country. I'm generally very optimistic about most things. And I'm sort of an optimistic character. But right now, there's been a lot of destabilization for a lot of reasons, not the least of which was having a president for four years who talked about it's okay to call people bad names and it's okay to, and in fact, it's a good idea to polarize the heck out of people. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's dangerous stuff. For sure. That's dangerous. Very. So right now I'm a little, one thing I know is when you, when you have the change and you have the backlash, you have to anticipate the backlash and you have to work with the backlash. So my politics is always a working underneath. I, I mean, you know, I'm doing some work now of, doing interpersonal and institutional attitude change around trans folks because trans folks are under siege. They're under siege. There's no mistaking it. Explicitly. Absolutely. And so, but you do that. I don't, I'm not working on a campaign. There is no campaign here at this point. There may be next year, but I am, but my job, I've been writing blogs about it. I've been, um, And I'm gathering a group of volunteers who will do some work. And just that, just having conversations. Here's what we know. What do you need to hear about it? What's your concern? And there's a nice model that's been well-researched that that we'll be using for that. And that's the the dig in because the the backlash is here. And you don't want it to throw us all under the water. We need to be standing and doing things to make good things happen. That's actually a perfect segue into my last question, okay. which is um, what can Boulder do to be more inclusive and welcoming to queer folks? Well, one, oh gosh. Maybe that's not a closer. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's, a, well, it's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's, not a, it's not a straightforward, easy um, yeah. answer. I think a part of it is to stop thinking we're so done with this in the same way that we have to stop thinking we're so done with racism, we have to stop thinking we're so done with xenophobia, we have to stop thinking we're so done with <laughs> with sexism, give me a break. Yeah. I mean, I, we. this is a good town in so many ways. It has so many wonderful parts to it. It's why it's been really hard for me to leave even when I wanted to. Um, and And one of the things that would help us to move ahead more is to 
do the work underneath of just saying, what did I really learn? And what do I really feel in my heart of hearts? And what do I need to do about that? And can I find, for me as a white person, can I find some other white people with whom I can talk about what we learned and help each other unlearn it so that we're not expecting people of color to help us unlearn it, but we can do it ourselves? Um, I think that's a piece of it. You know, we're so afraid of history right now because it shows us up as bad. What, what do we think about? What do we do? The, for those of us who have kids, we don't want to deny what they did that was a problem. We want to help them to correct what was a problem. And you don't have to do that by being mean to people. In fact, that's not the best way to do that. It's the way to do that is to say, what the heck were we thinking? And how do we get out of that? And will you help me do that? And here's the support I need. And not expecting somebody else in, in the group that we've done it to, but to expect our friends who are in our own group to do that with us. Um, I think that's a piece of it. I think a piece of it is to think about housing and issues like that. That's been an issue for, for I knew people in the early days, like in the 70s, who would lie about, we're really sisters. They weren't sisters. And, and some of them weren't lovers either. They just needed more people in a house than could afford to you know, rent yeah. that house. Yeah. Um, I think those kinds of issues are there. And I think in general, what we can do for everybody in this town is to do everything to reduce polarization. I'm actually thinking, this is a little silly, I'm actually thinking of a little campaign through a letter to the editor that's something like, can we get back to thanking people in traffic for letting us in? <laughs> Not just letting us in, but thank them you know, and because thanking helps the person who's doing the gratitude and it helps the person receiving the gratitude. And it's a day-to-day -day thing. And anybody who drives, it happens all the time. So, you know, somebody who doesn't cut you off or, you know. I, this, this, this actually uh, hits a nerve with me because as someone who doesn't own a car, Thank you. I, I, um, I'm, I can feel that I have some, some anger issues around the way drivers behave towards me. And, uh, I'm not super glad to thank drivers for their courteous behavior right now. Uh, it's an antidote to yeah, what is going on. That's right. I understand why it would yeah. be it. And I, love it I am a driver I, yeah, I and, um, yeah. and I try to be incredibly visible in my thanking people. Um, it changes people's day to be thanked. Yeah. People actually remember that all day. Yep. Glenda, thank you so much for uh, spending time uh, talking with me this morning. Um, I, I know uh, the, the, the subject of LGBTQ history is just so such a huge subject and it's unrealistic to, sure. to, to cram it all into an hour interview. But um, I really appreciate the, the anecdotes about the history of what happened in city council and, and your service to the community. I really admire you. Well, I really, I, it's been a true pleasure to talk with you and partly because you're right there. I mean, you're right there and you are, I felt so understood in what I was saying. That's a nice feeling. Oh, good. Well, so thank, thank you, you for participating. It was really lovely. Gonna find me a residential pedestrian district where I can gracefully grow older. Gonna spend my remaining years sharing boulders. Thank you for listening to Sharing Boulder. Please support the podcast by sharing it with your friends and neighbors. 
you can contact me at linktree slash philipbogren, which you can find by visiting sharingboulder.us, where you can also find show notes and previous episodes. This episode of Sharing Boulder was produced by Philip Ogren and edited by Katie Avery. The music was created by Nathaniel Ogren and Sack Lunch. Keep sharing, Boulder.